0: Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell-Stayton, and I'm joined in the lab, as always, by my good friend and partner in crime, Arian Darby.
1: Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Arian, and I just wanted to deliver a quick disclosure. I am currently an employee of Warner Brothers Entertainment, and any feedback and opinions that I have are solely my own and are not a reflection of the company.
0: In this episode, we dig into the biology of Danny Rand, also known as the Immortal Iron Fist. I sit down with evolutionary biologist Dr. Sheila Paddock of Duke University, who studies the biomechanics of extreme movements. We talk about what makes for a powerful strike, how extreme movements evolve, and the biology of an animal whose punch is literally faster than the blink of an eye. So sit down and kick back. Because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So today we are going to talk about extreme movements. Specifically, we're talking about striking, hitting, smashing, all the things that comic book nerds love to see on the pages and on the screen. I'm talking about that nitty-gritty, hardcore, rough, and tumble. Uh, I'm actually glad that we get to talk about this uh, in the lab today because uh, many of you may not know uh, but my esteemed co-host, Arian Darby, actually has a black belt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's how we're going to start this? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, that is a fun and ancient Snapple fun fact uh, that I'm sure you could look up in the the scrolls of Taekwondo lore from back in the 90s. But I actually... Right around the age of five or six got into martial arts, probably due to a combination of a couple of things. First and foremost, a deep and never-ending love affair with Ninja Turtles. Oh, got to. Got to do it. And then second... That's Turtles in a Half Shell right there. Oh, yeah. Bruce Lee. <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend. Between Bruce Lee and a healthy diet of Ninja Turtles... There was no way I was escaping my childhood without doing some form of martial arts. Uh, So, I don't know if I was the one that decided on Taekwondo. Probably not. I think my parents probably felt that that was the most practical approach for me at the time. Uh But that is what I got into. And I stuck with it probably right up until high school. And so, a good close to 10 years And through that journey, I ended up actually earning a black belt in Taekwondo. Nice. So um, definitely a a fun and exciting chapter in my life where I got to mentally take on the foot and (laughs) anything else that (laughs) was uh, in my way um, in my childhood through my imagination. And learned a little bit about self-defense too, which I think is important for anyone.
0: Nice. I think the take-home here is that if you meet Arian Darby on the streets, that you should test him, see exactly how much he knows, and uh, push him to his
1: limits. One one hundred percent. I think in my mind, I'll kick you in the face, but in all reality, you'll probably just feel a, a pinch on your kneecap because my foot just doesn't go that high anymore.
0: Yeah, it, it all you gotta you gotta keep up with it. It, it takes practice. I'm still a
1: black belt. Up here. Okay.
0: (laughs) And that's really all that matters. That's all that matters. (laughs) So, when I'm thinking about martial arts in the comic book multiverse, I'm thinking about Danny Rand, aka the immortal Iron Fist. So, Aaron, give us the rundown on this character. What is the deal with Danny
1: Rand? So Danny Rand is, as you said, the immortal Iron Fist. He is the protector of Kun Lun, and he first debuted in the 1970s. So this was a time right after, actually, probably right after when Bruce Lee was really hitting his mainstream stride in pop culture, and uh, martial arts was something that everyone was aware of and into and it's everybody was kung fu fighting. everyone was kung fu fighting (laughs) fast as lightning (laughs) all of that (laughs) and of course that trickled its way into the comic book scene because the comic book scene has always if nothing been a reflection of what's kind of happening in the broader cultural space and so with that the character of Danny Rand was Uh, and the Iron Fist just in general, was very much kind of centered around this idea of Eastern philosophy and martial arts training and harnessing your chi. And although that is what his power is kind of ultimately steeped in alongside uh, ritualistic combat and fighting an ancient dragon, I think (laughs) that where we'll probably ultimately take this episode is sort of away from some of the mysticism and uh, looking at how it's actually possible for someone maybe of a smaller stature to have a harder impact when it comes to combat.
0: Yeah, that's exactly where we're going actually. Our most contemporary rendition of Danny Rand is uh, in the
1: recently canceled Netflix series.
0: Uh, Did you see the Netflix series?
1: I did. I saw both seasons of The Iron Fist. And then also watched The Defenders, where they brought all of the Marvel superheroes together. Yeah.
0: And, you know, so I mean, The Defenders, man, I mean, think that was, that was a pretty epic um, mix-up of all these different characters that we got to see sort of slowly laid out by uh, Netflix. You know, but all honesty, I think, you know, of all the characters, I find Danny Rand probably the most problematic uh, Why I mean, is that? So the thing is, for me, you know, look, looking at this character, I, I feel like Danny Rand is kind of like the embodiment of like cultural appropriation in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, you got this, you know, this guy. I mean, if you just consider his story, right, you have this orphaned kid, you know, from a rich family who, you know, he crash lands in you know, the Himalayas and he's taken in by the monks of Kunlun. And he's raised and clothed and fed, trained in their martial arts, and then ultimately given their greatest weapon, this iron fist. And then ultimately he abandons them, goes back to New York City, you know, becomes, you know, you know, gets his fortune, you know, that he inherited from his parents. And then Kung Lung is left to be destroyed. That is, I mean, that's, there's something really
1: messed up about that to me. (laughs) Yeah, you know, certainly I think the way the, the Netflix show is presented, it, it, it's not the most honorable thing, and it is kind of even questionable from a, a, a cultural perspective. And, you know, what's, what's even interesting about Kunlun, and they don't really get into this too much, or maybe not even at all in the Netflix show, but it's actually a city that exists on another plane of existence and only comes into contact with the reality of Earth every 10 some odd years. And so there, there's this element of otherworldliness uh, that I, I think that the Netflix show doesn't get into and, and some other issues and elements of, of, of mysticism. And um, what happens in the comic books is that a lot of the responsibility of the role of being Iron Fist throughout history um, weighs deeply on the recipients because they ultimately realize that they have been created to be this weapon that solely exists to be used in some form of combat in one way, shape, or another. And at the end of the day, if all your life is about combat, you're ultimately probably going to face inevitable doom. Yeah. At some point or other. You're you're probably gonna fall. Yeah. I mean I I think that's pretty fair. And, you know, the 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 big takeaway for anyone that's inherited the Iron Fist is, you know, to kind of go out in a blaze of glory and um, you know, be honorable in your death. But you know, what's interesting about the Iron Fist legend too is that Danny Rand isn't immortal, right? Like yeah. he even though He's known as the Immortal Iron Fist. That immortality is actually being referenced toward the role of the Iron Fist yeah. in that it it's ultimately a title. gets passed along to successor after successor after successor. And I, I feel like in, in one of the books that I've read, there's been something like 60 some odd, maybe 66 uh, Iron Fists to date throughout history. Uh, and, and they've all had certain issues with, with the role and what they're, they're kind of, there to be so you know in the Netflix show it's kind of like yeah he shows up he screws over his best friend by you know kind of (laughs) taking his you know arguably rightful place as the next Iron Fist yeah and then is like "Ah, I'm good let's peace out heads back to New York City and get um, that money yeah just just leaves uh, the ancient city without its protector yeah Uh, and that you know doesn't End up well for the city of Kunlun at all. Yeah. But, um, and it
0: ends up being, I think, a a major source of like angst and trial and tribulation for Danny as a character as well, sort of carrying the weight of abandoning his duties as the Iron Fist. I I mean, I think it feeds the story. It just, you know, it's just kind of a messed up scenario, like looking at it through the contemporary lens of of culture.
1: Sure. Um, And, And I think even in that time when those characters were introduced, like, You know, Danny Rand was introduced in the 70s when, you know, obviously martial arts was kind of more Asian focused. Uh, Luke Cage came out, and his character was kind of in this black exploitation time oh, yeah. period where you know he's running around saying things like "Sweet Christmas" and, <laughs> and <laughs> like it's just <laughs> there was some awkwardness to some of the characters that were yeah. were developed at that time. But yeah.
0: and they play, I think they they play on that a lot in the series, uh, in the Netflix series, which I I like a lot. You know, for um, you know, you see Luke Cage. You know, there's a scene where he breaks out of jail, and he's got the the um you know, that little, what's, I mean, it looks like a tiara, basically, like, yeah. around his head, and he's, like, the, looking at The nod at, to the OG
1: the, yeah. uh, costume, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> you know, he's looking in the uh, in the car, um, the car window, and, and he sees himself, and he's like, you look like a damn fool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they do the same thing in, uh, you know, with Danny Rand, you know, you brought up this idea of this mysticism right, around the character, and we, there's this, this lore that in order for him to get the Iron Fist, he actually has to to battle a dragon, right. you know, and he, in the Defenders, like, he's like telling this group that, you know, he's like talking to Luke Cage about it, and you know, he's like, o- okay, but you mean like inner Meta- demons, yeah, right? Metaphorical right? dragon, yeah, right? And he's like, no, it was a, it was a dragon. And I was like, come on, man. Like, you know? So I really like what they, what, they did, um, what they did there. In this episode, we are going to focus on the Iron Fist, and I think that he's just a a fascinating biological phenomenon, mostly because of his ability to to deal out these devastating strikes with this glowing fist of his. So to help us out, I contacted an evolutionary biologist, Dr. Sheila Paddock of Duke University, who studies evolutionary biomechanics of extreme movement. So let's hear about what she does.
2: My name is Sheila Paddock, and I'm a professor in the biology department at Duke University. And that means that I both teach, um, I teach animal physiology and biomechanics, and I also run a research lab, which works on what I would call evolutionary biomechanics. So the biological world of physical systems of whole organisms.
0: So biomechanics is the study of mechanical laws relating to the movement or structure of living organisms. And I think this gives us a pretty powerful framework for understanding who and what Danny Rand is as a biological phenomenon. So first things first, when we're considering the iron fist, delivering these devastating punches, exactly what does that mean physically? So I asked Sheila about exactly what it means to be powerful. Let's hear what she has to say. So today, we are talking about this character, the Iron Fist, right? the living weapon. And one of the sort of prime characteristics of this superhero is that he can generate these devastating forces with his fists. So as somebody who thinks really critically about biomechanics, if we're thinking about a punch or a kick or a tackle, what makes for A powerful strike?
2: There's a colloquial way of thinking about a powerful strike and there's a physics way of thinking about a powerful strike and it's kind of important to distinguish between the two. In the physics sense, power, mechanical power, is energy divided by time, or in other words work divided by time, or force times distance divided by time, or force times velocity. And the last one, force times velocity, we could start with a football player. And you know, different people on a football field have different jobs. Some of them are gonna be running really fast, so high velocity. Some of them are going to be really, really big, like weight-wise, like big, heavy people. And they're gonna move a little more slowly But when you think about it in terms of mechanical power, force times velocity, you can have a very high um, force or you can have a very high velocity, and it's the product of the two. So the the reason I'm kind of geeking out on this topic is that you can get high power by being big, really big, and maybe not moving that fast or you can be really, really tiny and move incredibly fast. And I think breaking it down a little bit like that helps explain why we have a fairly broad everyday notion of power, but it gets clarified if we look at the physics definition of power.
0: So on, on different sides of like the, the size spectrum, you're saying that power generally speaking, from a physics standpoint, can be generated either on one end through just being really big, even if you're moving slowly, or by being super small and then moving super fast.
2: Right. And one has to, you know, you kind of have to, it's, as one goes up, or let's, let's put it the other way, uh, if, as one of those parameters goes down, the other parameter has to go up in order to, to have a similar power. So when, you know, if we drift over into my research space, which is really, really tiny things that have incredible power outputs relative to their mass means that they are moving incredibly fast, like crazy fast, like we can't even, like we can't see it, we can't sense it, we have no concept of how fast these things are but we, we do have other things in our daily lives that we also know are very high power or powerful, like that you know football player running down the field, really, really, really big person, maybe not going the speed of a bullet or even close, but that huge mass um, or the force of the whole body is gonna um, balance out the lower velocity. Hmm so it is really a scaling thing and you know when we when we talk about like superpower superheroes or or you know a, a magical imagined human creature who can do really high power punching usually we connect that with moving incredibly fast so maybe there's a little weight added onto a fist or something but the the power that's given tends to be the velocity or the acceleration of that hit. And that's also true for biology, it's true for engineering, it's true for everything pretty much, where um, smaller things um, that that weigh less are gonna have to go a lot faster to have a really high power output, or if you wanna enhance a capability in in terms of power, um, and you're gonna keep the system the same size, then you're gonna have to move a lot faster.
0: So generally speaking, it seems like, uh, you know, power itself is this trade-off between the size of a system, right? In this case, something like a fist, and then the output of that system. You know, so I think for me, this brings in into mind, um, you know, the size shifters in the comic book multiverse. So individuals like Ant-Man and the Atom, and the fact that, you know, even when they sort of shrink down to very, very small sizes, they still maintain the strength of a normal size human being, right? Which gives them obviously an extreme advantage because they can be super evasive. But if you're going to conserve power, right, in that in that scenario, then in order for Ant Man or the Atom to be as powerful as they would be as a full size person, they would have to move extremely, extremely fast, right? Because they've um you know because they've minimized the system therefore they have to uh increase the output uh by way of of speed and obviously that also brings in uh, to mind like the other side of the spectrum right when bruce banner turns into the hulk he gets both much larger and much faster which means that you know his force increases exponentially and you know that combination of Increased mass, extremely increased mass, and extremely increased speed is what makes the Hulk the strongest there is. Hulk! Smash! But when we're considering Danny Rand, yeah, Danny is not that large of a guy necessarily, and he doesn't have an exceptionally large fist. So physically speaking, we have to assume that the power of his fist comes from the speed of his strike because he's not changing size at all. When we're considering extreme striking speed in our universe, uh, in nature, we can come up with all kinds of crazy examples. We can think about cheetahs bursting into a sprint after a gazelle. Uh, We can think about rattlesnakes striking, uh, and even things like chameleons with their ballistic tongues. All these are incredibly high-speed actions that different organisms take. But if we want to find the most extreme strike, In the animal kingdom, we actually need to go underwater. As it turns out, nature's real life iron fist is a relatively small invertebrate, a crustacean called the mantis shrimp. This is a group of organisms Sheila's been working on for over a decade. And she gave me the rundown on what makes them so deadly. Uh, So I know that a large proportion of your research focuses on the biomechanics of striking in this really fascinating creature, the the mantis shrimp. Now, it seems like, to me, at least in my mind, this animal seems to be nature's equivalent to the iron fist. So exactly how devastating is a punch from one of these animals?
2: I think a simple analogy might help. Um, the thing with mantis shrimp is that that they're moving so fast so they have these they have these little they're actually mouth parts they look like legs but in biology world we know that they're actually mouth parts um and they have and the the fastest mantis shrimp have the the mouth parts that look like legs they're call them appendages um have a little hammer at the end and these um hammers move with the acceleration of a bullet in a gun and that is not something that we can see with the naked eye so this is something we can only see with high-speed imaging and when we talk about how devastating is a strike from a mantis shrimp well these little mantis shrimp have hammers some species have the little hammers and each hammer weighs about the same as two toothpicks okay and they accelerate the toothpicks the, well they're not toothpicks but something about the same mass as two toothpicks at bullet-like accelerations and when they do this and they hit a snail which is their preferred food they can break open the snail shell now the kind of snails that they eat are marine snails and these marine snails are have very 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 hard not breakable shells so for me to open up one of these shells I could jump up and down on it all day, and I wouldn't be able to open them. I really would have to go get a nice big hammer and give it a good hard hit to break the equivalent snail shell. So the devastating abilities of a mantis shrimp really relate to moving incredibly tiny little low mass structures at extraordinary accelerations.
0: So obviously when it comes to the mantis shrimp, right, we're talking about a pretty small animal. And in order for them to have such a forceful strike, obviously they have to really, really pick up the speed. So just as a comparison, I was really interested in, you know, amongst the most elite athletes of our species, exactly how fast can we strike? Back in 2005, there was a research article published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine where a group of scientists went out and they measured the punching speeds of seven Olympic boxers across five weight classes. And when they looked at the speeds, they found that there was an average speed, average punching speed across these elite strikers was about 9.14 meters per second. Now, in comparison, when we consider the mantis shrimp, they strike somewhere between 12 and 24 meters per second and it takes them eight hundred microseconds to complete a strike. Eight hundred microseconds. So that is much faster than we can actually see. And turns out faster than cameras can even really record. So this is when we're
1: talking about extreme speed, these shrimp, I mean they really they just take the cake. So, yeah, that's much faster than the naked eye can pick up, obviously. And even quicker than some of the more rudimentary cameras out there can uh, capture. So you're definitely not going to be able to tell this is happening even on your cell phone or anything that you might have handy lying around the house. But, you know, my question almost is, too, like, how did they even realize the mantis shrimp was even striking? At first, like what is it just the aftermath of the snail's shell that kind of lends itself to the conclusion that there's like an actual strike occurring if you can't even see it happening
0: Yes, I mean, I think the the big thing is I mean you you see the destruction at the end, right, right. you know and you can sort of see them uh, you know you see them like working on uh, on the shell i'm I imagine you know but I mean this does beg the question you know exactly how do you go about getting into this kind of work like where like where do you start off in terms of studying these sorts of extreme movements in this very specific animal? So let's hear uh, how Sheila actually got into uh, studying what she does. So how exactly did you get into these extreme movements? Like what? Like how did you get into studying these mantis shrimp?
2: <laughs> in a nutshell, failure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so I I had done my PhD on sound production and working on the biomechanics of how animals produce sound and I was really interested in that because I was a serious musician all the way through college and I was trying to merge my interest in sound with my love of organisms and physics. So I head out to do my postdoc um, and my postdoc was supposed to be continuing on the theme of sound production. And there are mantis shrimp that people have reported making sound. Mostly this is through people who are scuba diving or fishing or hold was so kind of word of mouth or natural history. And then a couple of papers from the late 1800s. So I thought, okay, cool. I'm gonna go do my postdoc and discover how mantis shrimp produce sound, how they hear each other. And about, I don't know, a year into my postdoc, where I'd spent all my money on trying to record these sounds and I couldn't get it to work. Oh, no. I, think I, you know, I think I recorded them, but I, I just couldn't be certain. And I, I, I was sitting there and I'm looking at these animals and they're smashing open snail shells <laughs> and they're doing it all the time. And I decided I had better study the behavior that they do a thousand times a day rather than the behavior that I couldn't get them to do. Very practical. So I decided... You know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to rescue my science career and study this problem. And the, the crazy thing is that I immediately hit a huge wall with the mantis shrimp strike project because I had done a lot of high-speed imaging. And in fact, weirdly enough, a lot of the physics and mechanics of sound production are very similar to and in fact involve fast movements. So I was familiar with a lot of the techniques, but when I put the high-speed video camera on the, um, t- to film the mantis shrimp, I couldn't see anything. They were way too fast. And I was like, oh my gosh, I really am going to have to leave science. This isn't going to happen. <laughs> no. And it was through this kind of crazy um, sequence of events where the BBC Natural History Unit was Looking for good stories that had to do with technology, and long story short, they rented us uh, a sufficiently capable high-speed video camera, and we were able to see these strikes for the first time, as wow. far as I know anybody had ever seen them. It was right at the moment where extreme high-speed imaging was becoming available outside of ballistics in the military. It was the first time we were, we were finally able to put, you know cameras with incredible capabilities. With, that didn't require such highlights that they would just kill the animal immediately. So basically light sensitivity was a technological advance. And the next thing you know, we were filming shrimp. They discovered they were the fastest described appendage movement yet in the literature. And then everything just kept kept rolling. And here I am, like 14 years later, still working on them.
0: Wow. This is like our our first look at nature's Iron Fist. That's amazing. <laughs> So I really love this story because I think it really highlights how failure can lead to innovation, both technological innovation and intellectual innovation, and the fact that there's just so much serendipity involved in uh, in scientific exploration and in scientific discovery. Yeah, and you know, so for me, I mean, this really brings home the fact that exploration. You know, science should be allowed to explore and meander in all directions, and I think it's it's really easy to try to, you know, constrain the direction of science. But I think that it, it works most efficiently and it works most beautifully when individuals are allowed to explore creatively and to solve problems freely. You know, when it comes to um, when it comes to these sorts of things,
1: yeah, I definitely say there's just a certain zen to leaning into where the, the story is going. And it seemed like it was naturally wanting to tell something specifically about what these animals can do, um, and that was coming to the forefront. And so, you know, I, I applaud her for being courageous enough to, to pivot off of something that she had invested so much of her time and in life into. Um, I, I think oftentimes we can get, up, get caught up in... Uh, the the romanticism of our own ideas and and where we want the story to go because it fits nicely into our our own narrative. But um, she was able to kind of acknowledge that, hey, you know, the the sound thing isn't quite paying off, but what these guys are doing is something remarkable. And quite frankly, nobody's really taken the time or or figured out a way to uh, explain it.
0: So if we if we bring this back to to Danny Rand, you know, this human individual that is able to deal out these devastating blows, obviously Danny has exceeded human limits. Right? I mean, we just can't do this normally. But then that begs the question, exactly why can't we do this? Normally, our movements, all of our movements as humans are constrained by our bones and muscles and muscle contractions have their limits. But I mean, that should be you know, that generally speaking applies to all organisms. Right. I mean, all organisms have their functional limits. So if we're considering the mantis shrimp, how do they get around these limits? What makes this appendage so special to allow them to access this? extreme function that no other organism can so broadly speaking if we're thinking about the iron fist as a human man punching versus a mantis shrimp striking a shell underwater there are obviously a lot of differences between the two now in the real world the mantis shrimp as you said can strike way faster than any human so exactly what is it about their striking appendage that allows them to accomplish such incredible feats?
2: Okay, so I'm going to geek out on you again because... <laughs> okay. That's why we're here. Is, <laughs> this is an interesting part of thinking about um, human capabilities and why we don't normally do this unless it's in a comic book. shrimp. well, any, like, let's just let's back up animals right animals like mantis shrimp and humans we use muscles to move we contract muscles to to generate movement and it turns out muscles have some major limits to how powerful they can be we're back to that word powerful force and velocity either you can pick up something really heavy slowly or you can throw something really light quickly but you can't throw heavy things quickly. Mm -hmm. And this is just a universal physics problem that muscles have as well. So, um, this is long before I came on the scene, but biologists recognized this fundamental limit for directly muscle controlled movements. And yet they were seeing animals that were generating power outputs that were more extreme than what they knew muscles could do. And that that launched a field um, now probably half a century ago of looking at animals producing movements using materials and springs and latches rather than direct muscle contraction. So in other words, they're taking their muscle, they're contracting it slowly with a lot of force and putting all that energy into a spring. And the spring is what fires and powers these really fast movements we see in biology. So animals do this and actually, you know what? Humans do it too. We just add things in order to do that. So the classic example is a bow and an arrow. Mm. So if you try to throw an arrow, you're not going to take down that deer, but if you use your arm muscle to load up a springy bow, and then you let that bow fire a very lightweight arrow. So the arrow doesn't have to carry the weight of the muscles there you've got your lightweight system moving at very, very high velocities. And voila, you can take down that deer if that's what the goal is. So um, this is exactly what animals are doing that are really on the outer limits of what we know to be possible. And um, so the mantis shrimp, they load up a very, very forceful muscle that they, they contract that. And when they're contracting it, it loads a spring a latch holds everything in place and then when they're ready to fire they release the latch and off goes that little hammer at bullet like accelerations the the um the one thing that i wanted to comment on is that yes humans have done the analogous thing with bows and arrows but as of yet humans have not been able to design or engineer systems at the scale of mantis shrimp and slower that can, that can um, achieve equivalent performance wow. at light weights. even with so technology. May- yes, even with today's technology. And in fact, a lot of my work right now, um, when I'm not working on discovering and working with my own team on uh, discovering biological systems and measuring these things, a lot of my time is spent working with engineers who are really, really curious about how to manipulate where the energy is in a, in a very small system and getting these kinds of capabilities that we see in um, animals and other organisms, actually plants do this and so do fungi, uh, in order to generate incredibly high power relative to the mass systems or high velocity, high acceleration systems at very small scales. So this is actually a real engineering question um, that is really I, I would I, I think it's safe to say is a pretty hot topic at the moment
0: so essentially they've in order for mantis shrimp to accomplish these incredible feats they've evolved this incredibly specialized mechanism that allows them to essentially just subvert the limitations of their muscles right so they basically you know so now they have this like specialized latch system that just allows them to do things that most organisms simply cannot do. And this, you know, one of the things that, you know, Sheila mentioned is this we have not figured out how to accomplish what these small crustaceans have uh have accomplished despite the fact that, you know, we have, you know, all of modern technology at our disposal. I think that's absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the fascinating things about science too where nature seems to always be such a source of inspiration for taking technology and our own understanding uh, of how things work uh, and innovating to the next level because we have these examples and these phenomena that at a certain point in time are inexplicable. And now there's some understanding coming into the mix, just at least in terms of rationalizing and providing some verbiage around how it's actually occurring, But we still can't necessarily replicate it. And that's kind of fascinating when you think about all of the tools at our disposal, all of the insight and knowledge that we've collected over time, all of the resources and brain power that you can put into a room. It's still mystifying to explain how something happens in the natural world. But I, I think what's also interesting, you know, is that once we do get a grasp of, and a hold of it, uh, the the implications can be vast and varied across a ton of different industries.
0: Oh, absolutely! You yeah, know, and we I think we talked a little bit about this in our uh, second episode, way back in in episode two, when we were talking about Spider Man. We talked about this idea of you know bio inspired engineering, which is an entire field unto itself, where you know engineers and biologists come together to you know understand the solutions that nature and organisms have come up with to solve all sorts of problems in order to try to literally engineer our own solutions to those same problems and you know we've seen that play out time and time again in the the Spider-Man episode we talked about all the different ways that uh that silk is being used uh in our everyday lives from you know medicine to um, you know, structural engineering, et cetera. Yeah, so, you know, if we consider, like, some of the, the most extreme problems, you know, in, that contemporary society faces, you know, things like getting water in extreme environments. Obviously, there are organisms that have been evolving to live in these environments for millennia. Things like desert beetles that, you know, have these very special-shaped carapaces that allow them to wick water out of the air and then channel it into their mouths. And you know, now we're designing, you know, water bottles that can that are shaped the exact same way and have the same properties you know, and can do the same thing. So now you know populations that are living in these very extreme environments with very little access to water can now literally pull the water from the air. Uh you know, and we see this applied across all sorts of different things, you know, shark skin, swimsuits, and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, this idea of biologically inspired engineering, I think, you know, it's been a source of incredible innovation over the last few decades.
1: Yeah, and it's almost interesting. It sounds like you're almost talking about some ideas about extreme adaptation for for survival in some of these uh, ecosystems that these animals are living in. And And one of the thoughts that came up for me was, how did the shrimp actually come to a point to, I guess, kind of evolve this striking capacity? Uh, What is it about snails and and cracking through the outer shell or, I guess, using them as a source food um, sort of lended the shrimp's evolutionary path to go down this road? Because it seems a little bit extreme. I know when I eat snails, (laughs) which is all the time, escargot, Darby, they called me. (laughs) Never. But point being, they come in a little tray, and you just kind of scoop them out, and there it is. Voila. But I'm sure in the natural world, as a smaller creature, it's a, a little bit more complicated than that. So is a snail difficult to extricate from its outer shell? Is it... Um, you know, do you, as another animal or organism, do you wait for it to kind of hop out of one shell and move into the other? Or are you maybe an impatient mantis shrimp and you've evolved the capacity to just crack it open because, you know, they're like a Pringle. Once you pop the fun, don't stop.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, so the thing is, so, uh, snails actually, they cannot remove themselves from their shells. Mm, Okay. Um, so they're, they're stuck in there and that's where they hunker down. You know, if anything happens, they... Um, You know, that is their first and pretty much only line of defense for most snails. There are some that have evolved all sorts of other defenses that are really crazy and cool, but we won't get into right now. Yeah, so, you know, essentially, you know, the saying in biology is that, you know, extreme performance evolves under extreme conditions, right? I mean, that is, um, you know, that's sort of one of the fundamental basis for evolution by way of natural selection. And, you know, so when you're a small crustacean and when faced with this extreme challenge, like trying to feed on something that has this shield, essentially, you know, trying to find a way to get past those defenses, I mean, that basic, you know, predator-prey relationship is what leads to these extreme innovations. It's interesting to think about, you know, the mantis shrimp versus the snail, In this scenario, because again, if we bring it back to our Marvel universe, thinking about the Iron Fist, it also brings to mind when the Iron Fist, when Danny Rand meets Luke Cage, when they first meet. Yeah, especially when we, as we see it play out in the in the Netflix universe, and also you know as we as it plays out in the comic book pages and several different story arcs you they don't really get along. they're kind of coming from different places. They don't really see where each other is coming from, and it eventually leads to an altercation. Now, for those of you that don't know, Luke Cage is uh essentially invulnerable, you know so his skin is unbreakable. He's the unbreakable man. So in this face off between Luke Cage and the Iron Fist, you basically get the comic book equivalent to the mantis shrimp versus the snail. You get this immovable object versus this unstoppable force. In Luke Cage's story, the, you know, when he undergoes this experiment in prison, he comes out on the other side. You know, the biology of his skin somehow changes and it uh, essentially takes on the properties of an abalone. An abalone is a marine shellfish. And the physical structure of the abalone shell is one of the hardest structures in nature. So very literally, you have this, on one hand, you have the Iron Fist with this extreme striking capability. And on the other hand, you have this massive individual loot cage that has this unbreakable, impenetrable skin. And, you know, that is, you know... I think a pretty decent parallel uh, when it comes to understanding this relationship between the mantis shrimp and the snail. So then that begs the question, exactly what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? What keeps these animals from simply tearing themselves apart when it comes to trying to destroy you know, such a hard surface? So let's hear what Sheila had to say about this. You have these mantis shrimp, and they have this this specialized feature um, or set of features that allow them in combination to you know belt out these incredibly powerful strikes, I mean, if we consider like Newton's third law of motion, right everything has an equal uh, every reaction has an equal and opposite reaction, as much force as a strike delivers, it seems like the appendage would also have to withstand that much force. So how do these mantis shrimp keep from like tearing themselves apart?
2: Yeah, that is a great question. And in fact, um, just as a plug for the kind of work that you're doing on this podcast, um, we do have an answer to that question from uh, in mantis shrimp. And it's because other scientists and engineers listen to these types of programs and get ideas. So um ages ago, like over a decade ago, I gave a main stage TED Talk that was, you know, recorded and put online and an engineer who I didn't know watched it. And he's and he's a materials engineer. His name is David Casales. And he he tells a story about this on a podcast actually uh, when he published the the work at Science a few years ago now, and he, he watched my TED talk, which I had put together for a general audience, and he watched it, and he's like, hold on a minute. You know, I was trained as an engineer or a, or a material scientist that shells are unbreakable, and here I am watching a mantis shrimp break shells. There must be something incredible about the fracture resistance of the mantis shrimp's hammer." And I have to say that I did not know this in my field of biology. I just didn't know that there was a big whole other field of material science about fracture-resistant materials. So he and a bunch of other colleagues went, went on and, and are continuing to um, uh, solve that, and they did. Um, and not only that, not only have they solved it, but they've also started to build synthetic materials that are fracture resistant based on how the general principles of how mantis shrimp do it. So, how do mantis shrimp do it? They have a very hard outer layer to the hammer, so very mineralized, and inside the ball of this hammer is slightly less mineralized material that's layered, kind of like plywood layers that you would see in plywood. But it's layered in a way that um, the impact, the energy of the impact is actually concentrated in the center of the hammer, instead of, you know, of uh, you know, uh, busting up and breaking the outer layer of the hammer. It's centered in the middle of the hammer. And as the energy is um, experienced there, it, all those little layers dissipate the energy. So it makes it so it's little, little fractures will happen, but they won't spread. Hmm. And that will keep the, the hammer intact. And then the final thing they discovered is that it's a little bit like a baseball in the sense that the outer layer keeps the whole thing really, really tightly in compression. So it's just tightly wrapped with materials. And that somehow or other emerges from the way that the hammer grows in the mantis shrimp. So it has a, it has a really amazing system for concentrating the energy in a region of the hammer that then dissipates the energy and prevents uh, cracks from spreading and the whole there's a whole other field of people who are really curious about these kinds of materials and they can be really helpful for us as humans not just um, animals (laughs) because you know if you could if you can have really lightweight fracture resistant materials you can have better helmets and all kinds of stuff so there's a lot of A lot of cool stuff tied up in the evolutionary history of mantis shrimp.
0: So again, that that brings us back to this idea of biologically inspired engineering. So not only have they solved this problem of delivering these massive strikes, but they've also had to solve the related problem of being able to withstand the extreme forces that are produced. So when we're thinking about You know, the evolution of these extreme movements, if we're thinking about adaptations, generally speaking, I mean, it's a whole systems process, right? I mean, it's easy to think of, you know, a single punch as an adaptation, but there has to be all these compensatory mechanisms that come along with it in order to allow the system to maintain proper function. So when we're thinking about Danny Rand as, you know, this kind of scrawny guy who, you know, is then bestowed the, powers of this iron fist and he's able to deal this mighty blow with his fist well okay he has to punch with his fist but that fist is connected to the rest of his body and unfortunately he's not the immortal iron body he's only the immortal iron fist yeah so he would also have to completely remodel or you know, substantially remodel you know, a lot of his other biological systems things like his skeletal features in order to be able to withstand these mighty blows that he's actually dealing out to his opponents
1: yeah and so obviously the comic book world is going to take some liberties with that and You know, we see parallels even in the real world with fighting, right? Because you mentioned that, obviously, there'd have to be some structural changes to his body to uh, essentially absorb and handle the impact of the blows that he's dealing out, Uh, and even just his hand, right? I mean, uh, the fact that it's not shattering upon impact after dealing uh, such a substantial force to uh, his enemies is... Uh, hyper unrealistic, and we see that even in modern-day boxing or UFC fighting, right, where uh, you have the padding of the glove and the ounce weight of the glove adjustable, but uh, by all means there for the protection of the puncher, not necessarily the recipient. Um, yes, very true. <laughs> <laughs> you bring up a great point in in that the
0: human body has you know methods for compensating for specific activities right i mean this is what generally we call adaptive acclimation right so you know when we consider things like uh like tennis players for instance you know when you start playing tennis from a very young age your dominant hand actually grows to be longer than your non-dominant hand Mm. and that's you know simply a function of this repetitive action that requires so much force and you get Compensation, but that compensation is asymmetrical because you're not swinging with both hands, All right. So I mean that's just one example, but there's all sorts of ways that you know the body you know adjusts to activity. I mean you know simply working out, right? You get bigger, you get stronger. You know if you run long distances, you lose weight. And you have a tendency to um, you know to lose fat content, right? I mean your body changes in all these different ways. But when we're considering Danny, we're talking about some very extreme remodeling because again, this extreme performance you know requires you know extreme compensation either through adaptation or through acclimation so then that begs the question you know if we have danny with this crazy ability to deliver a punch or if we consider any of the superheroes that we've ever talked about on this podcast why don't they just always win right there always seems to be some kind of cost that comes along with yeah, you know, these incredible abilities, right? Some sort of weakness, some proverbial Achilles heel. So exactly what is the cost to this sort of extreme performance in the natural world? Let's hear what Sheila has to say about that.
2: One of the things that that is a challenge for me working on truly extreme organisms and in terms of, you know, they they're they're just kind of the outer limits of what humans could even imagine. A lot of people Naturally, I think it's just a human tendency, assume that these are perfect, that they're optimized, that they're all powerful, when in fact they really are not. With every single thing that comes along with extraordinary superpowers, There are major costs, and frankly that comes up with a lot of the superheroes, right? That they get this powerful thing, and then they lose something else in the process. Yes. So, you know, there's a lot of that in the systems that I study, but I want to mention one in Shrub. and we see this actually in many, many different fast systems. So it goes back to how you get high power, right? So you have to have high force or high velocity. So shrimp that have hammers have to load a very, very stiff spring. And in order to do that, it takes their muscles a long time to load it. And, you know, we're talking about, okay, let's just step back here for a second. One of the fastest animals on the planet is eating one of the slowest animals <laughs> on the planet. They eat snails. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, the, there's this crazy scenario where here we have, you know, you you would think with the extraordinary superpowers of mantis shrimp, that they would be all powerful and be able to catch everything. But in fact, they hunt (laughs) the slowest animals, which are snails. And there's a reason for this, which is that when they evolved this ability to put energy into a very, very stiff spring... And have the spring drive the hammer they had to evolve very slowly contracting muscles that have very very high force Hmm. and the result is it takes them a long time to load the spring and that means that they, they do not have the response time in order to um fire the hammer immediately upon seeing a prey or you know being able to nail a fish swimming by i mean they do on occasion do that but that's they're not good at it. It takes them a long time. So when they evolved into that direction um, of having extremely high acceleration movement, they, it came with a big trade-off. And these kinds of trade-offs, to me, are actually much more interesting than, and I think much more informative, than thinking about the kind of most extraordinary most extreme optimized take over the planet type of thing because that that just isn't the case and i think you know i think that actually underlies a lot of comic strip comic character stories right you get this power and it comes with it with a terrible cost yes. and those kinds of trade offs are very interesting in biology as they are with humans and human engineering and likewise with the fracture resistance of the hammer in mantis shrimp all of the ingredients for that are present in crustaceans it's just a few tweaks um and and organizing things just a little bit differently that gives it that ability and with those tweaks of course um come all of the deep evolutionary history and uh that that come with that and you know it's not perfect and it has problems and it's been kind of something i've been struggling with my whole career since i since I started working on these weird amazing systems is to try to explain that they're not perfect and they're not optimized. So yeah but I, th- I think that follows I think we all know that we all know that about life but it's just really tempting human nature to be like the magic room is the most powerful animal on the planet it's gonna take over you know and it's <laughs> very, very unlikely. Okay <laughs>
0: Well, I can sleep a little bit better at night now, knowing that they won't take over the planet. <laughs> so it's interesting to hear Sheila talk about this idea of constraints and trade offs when it comes to this extreme performance, because that's something that we see over and over and over again when it comes to the comic book universe. Even the most overly ridiculously powered individuals in all of the comic book multiverse have their trade-offs they have their weaknesses right i mean if we consider you know an individual like superman which who for all intents and purposes is a god in the dc universe just completely overly powered compared to everyone else but you know he has this incredible weakness as well which is kryptonite i mean even you know i mean when exposed to kryptonite even an individual like you know batman who doesn't himself have any uh, superpowers becomes you know potentially a very dangerous individual for Superman to go up against in in those situations. So it's interesting to hear her talk about how these uh, constraints and trade offs play out in an evolutionary sense.
1: Yeah. So you know I think earlier on when we were starting to learn a little bit more about the mantis shrimp, it really seemed like they were the Bruce Lee of the ocean, right? Like they were just kind of <laughs> swimming around, whooping ass left and right, taking names, but to hear that there's this trade-off, you know, it kind of, it brings things back down to reality in a sense, and and, and it makes sense too. But, uh, you know, and and tangentially, I'm gonna go off on a tangent. There's a couple things you guys should probably YouTube. Number one, try and see if you can see footage of the mantis shrimp. I know it's on there. I was kind of Googling and YouTubing around and kind of looking at some footage and there's definitely some nature footage of these creatures in action. So check it out. It, it is like super fast, so you're gonna have to like try not to blink, but you can see them in action, which is cool.
0: Yeah, we'll probably uh, post some, some slow-mo videos on Twitter and the, and the Instagram for those that might be interested.
1: Yeah, so you guys can actually see what we're talking about here. So speaking of Bruce Lee, some of the, one of the other videos that you guys should reference online, check it out on YouTube or something, is his one-inch punch demonstrations. And this is probably about as close of a demonstration of maybe we'll say a real-life Danny Rand or a human version of the mantis shrimp that we'll probably ever see, where the mechanics of sort of loading the punch, uh, quick striking, devastating power and impact are all there on display uh, from a martial arts perspective. So I thought that was an interesting parallel between sort of both Danny Rand and the mantis shrimp uh, that could be worth checking out. So feel free to kind of dig that up and and see what you think. But you know I, I think Sheila is right in that when it comes to the stories of the comic books there's always this layer and element of tragedy in the trade-off when you're looking at even just from the powers that some of the heroes are bestowed what the costs are that come along with it and you can take a look on the marvel side which in particular does a, a really interesting job of of sort of weaving those into the stories and the backdrops of the characters where a character like bruce banner who we mentioned earlier Uh, gets exposed to gamma radiation, and he has access to uh, this nearly limitless power in the form of the Hulk, but at the same time has to give up access to his intellect. And you have a a character from the X-Men, like Rogue, where uh, with the simple touch she's able to absorb someone's memories or abilities or powers if they're gifted from kind of a mutant or superhero sense but at the same time is tragically doomed to never really have the full human experience because every time she comes into physical contact with someone she is essentially uh just overwhelmed with their essence, whether it's the good or bad memories, the powers that she might not be able to control because she's never been exposed to them, and any sort of feeling that comes along with that. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that she draws those parallels to that, and uh, we can see that in the natural world. And I I think even in the episode where we're talking with Doug Emlin about uh, just uh, some of the uh, deer and, and moose and, and, and yeah. things of that nature. Evolution of evolution extreme evolution weapons. Of, yeah, of extreme weapons. Those come with a, a terrible, terrible cost.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously we spent a lot of time talking about you know this punch, this extreme strike of both Danny Rand and the mantis shrimp. You know, but obviously when we're considering the immortal Iron Fist, or, I mean, one of the sort of hallmarks of this Iron Fist is the fact that it glows right this idea of it giving off you know light and maybe heat we're not quite sure and he can do all these different things with it you know there's something about this glow that is intriguing to me is there any sort of basis to this at all so in my conversation with Sheila I asked her about this and she gave me an answer that completely blew me away let's hear what she has to say about this. One of the trademark characteristics of, of Iron Fist is his glowing fist. And it's my understanding that mantis shrimp can actually generate light and heat during a strike. What produces this phenomenon?
2: Okay, yeah. So along with their ability to move at such extraordinary accelerations is their use of a really most extreme fluid dynamic phenomenon called cavitation. And cavitation is when um, you have two areas of flow, one moving in water, one moving incredibly fast next to an area of water that's moving slowly and when you get that you get low pressure extremely low pressure so that a little um, essentially bubble of vapor forms in the water so it's a little bit like thinking about boiling water but instead of heat causing boiling and that low pressure it's actually too fast flow next to slow flow so this little vapor bubble forms when mantis shrimp hit snails, or actually, frankly, when they hit anything, and that vapor bubble is called a cavitation bubble. Now, the formation of the vapor bubble is very cool, but the most amazing part is that it collapses at extremely short timescales, and here we are, back to power again, (laughs) because essentially, the power, um, in other words, the energy released per unit time when a cavitation bubble collapses is truly extreme it generates a huge amount of noise it generates light which we actually can't see as humans but um it's because it's very very brief and uh sound and heat like equivalent to the surface of the sun heat
0: equivalent to i'm sorry you said equivalent to the surface of the sun
2: yeah (laughs) yeah
0: that's absurd
2: so It is absurd. I love how you were just
0: going to move past that like it was not a thing. But that that sounds like something that came straight out of a comic book.
2: I know. There's got to be some. If there is not a comic character that uses cavitation, somebody's got to get on that right now (laughs) because it's cool.
0: I will put everyone on notice.
2: (laughs) So, right. So, but cavitation. So, actually, the very, very, very first video I ever got of Mantis Shrimp when that BBC crew was visiting, we saw cavitation bubbles and I knew what it was because I had weirdly enough studied another system where that we thought that was, that happened. And then I was like, holy smokes, this is even more interesting than just the fact that they're moving so fast. And so cavitation, when we talk about that kind of energy, so first of all, people have been studying that for controlling nuclear fusion, okay, so it's that wow. extreme. And they also are dealing with it constantly with boat propeller design. So boat propellers, basically, anytime you spin something really fast or move something really fast through water, you've got a problem with cavitation. Hmm. So it sets an upper speed limit to submarines. It sets an upper speed limit for fish swimming. And the thing is, manta shrimp have gone and basically, you know, they're like, well, you know, they're going that fast. And they're going so fast and they're hitting something that is hard and the presence of cavitation for them is an asset, right? So it actually should help break the snail shell on top of the impact of their hammer.
0: So they've weaponized it.
2: Yeah. Oh man. Yes. And our work so far suggests that they've they've hunted kind of or you know, over evolutionary history they have evolved to actually suppress cavitation when the hammer is moving towards the snail shell or their prey and then to just have cavitation occur at that moment of impact. And that's a whole other arena that is very interesting both biologically in terms of evolutionary history and fluid dynamics but also engineering design. Man people it, like people have been trying to deal with getting rid of cavitation noise and cavitation damage and everything. Actually, it's, I mean, it's even a big issue in fuel injection engines. Any kind of fluid that's moving like that uh, has these problems. So we see that in mantis Shrimp too, and it's extremely interesting.
0: So again, associated with this extreme movement, they've had to solve yet another problem. And, you know, again, this is a problem that You know, technologically speaking, we deal with all the time, you know, when it comes to um, anything that's, you know, that we want to move very, very quickly. And not only have they solved this problem, the mantis shrimp, but they've solved it in such a way that they've actually been able to turn it into a weapon with this cavitation. And I just, this is, I mean, these shrimp are just completely mind
1: blowing to me. Yeah and you know I th- I think the other thing that comes to mind for me too just as an intellectual curiosity is that the mantis shrimp is able to induce cavitation and is moving this quickly underwater and yeah. I don't know if you've ever tried to get like your Muhammad Ali underwater and <laughs> do some boxing drills under there or or any sort of Motion underwater, striking wise, but that is difficult. Extremely difficult. Right. And I mean,
0: again, if we take it all the way back to the beginning, right, we're comparing like boxers to the mantis shrimp, not only are they punching well over twice as fast, but they're doing it in. Underwater. Exactly. Exactly. Which is just absolutely crazy to me. I mean, you know, between that and. This idea of cavitation, like giving off light, and heat equivalent to the surface of the cannot, I cannot stress how ridiculous that idea is. That something can punch through water fast enough to create heat equivalent to the surface of the sun. That is as close to a superpower in the real world as I've ever heard of in
1: my entire life. And I've done a lot of biology. Yeah. Unreal. Um, And shout out to my high school physics teacher. Some of that stuff she was talking about earlier with the equations (laughs) was um, giving me some massive throwbacks to the classroom. But, uh, you know, I'm sure somebody out there that that's a little bit quicker with the equations can maybe sort out what the speed and, and ramifications would be for the mantis shrimp if they were in air versus underwater. And like. I What's hotter than the surface of the sun? What's faster than twelve to twenty-four meters per second? And how does that translate to land speed? Like I, yeah, I, I just like I can't even fathom. But if you can, <laughs> please shoot us a message on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. If you if you can kind of map out that equation and and maybe have uh, what that would maybe equate to on on land. Yeah, um, it
0: would man, also be interesting to know. In terms of force, if you scaled up a mantis shrimp to the size of Danny Rand, like, exactly what kind of force are we talking about? Like, what – exactly how devastating would that punch be, theoretically speaking? Hit us up on the gram or hit us up on Twitter if you have any kind of idea. Uh, So, But when we're thinking, again, like, you know, if we take one more dive into this, you know – if we zoom way out and think about Danny as a character, obviously, you know, he has this very long, sort of arduous journey to become the Iron Fist. And it is all of those experiences, you know, in culmination across the arc of his entire life that leads him to become this hero with these incredible powers. And in the same way, as an evolutionary biologist thinking about the mantis shrimp, right, there has to be some very specific and long evolutionary history that's led them to this extreme innovation in the natural world. So I asked Sheila a little bit about exactly how this phenomenal bit of performance came to be. And let's hear what she had to say about that. In the Marvel universe, like thinking about Danny Rand, this guy who becomes the immortal Iron Fist, he has this really long History that leads him down the path to becoming this hero this this iron fist and in a similar way It seems like there must have been Like some long history of evolution leading to the extreme performance we see in mantis shrimp So how does such incredible performance evolve in the natural world? Are there rules?
2: Yeah, okay This is You've kind of gotten to my holy grail <laughs> if we're allowed to mix different genres yeah. of entertainment. Um, so my holy grail is to answer that question. Um, one of the kind of weird things about being one of a handful of scientists who work at the outer extremes to come into the system right at the moment, or a little over a decade ago, that we could even visualize or study these fast movements at all means that it is a small data set that we have and it's growing all the time. And as you know, if we're going to understand the evolutionary history of these systems, we need to have a pretty good comprehensive look at the diversity and the evolutionary history to be able to figure out what's happened. So there are lots of other systems that do this, like trap jaw ants have evolved at least five times across the ants using spring and latch systems. So there's a bunch of stuff, stories in there that we haven't discovered. Mm-hmm. I will tell you in mantis shrimp that we have worked on their evolutionary tree, the phylogeny. And we they also have a fossil record. And so we have a dated tree. And what we can see is that all the way down into the tree, like over 100 million years, they have had... Characteristics of this appendage that look like a spring, and certainly uh, some kind of uh, appendage that could be um, more spear-shaped rather than hammer-shaped, and that the hammer capability, the really extremely fast capability, evolved about 50 million years ago. We can see that in the fossil record and in the dating of the tree, and we don't know what it was that came that you know that pushed. Them towards that extreme ability. The the ancestors to the hammer smashing mantis shrimp are spearing mantis shrimp, and they catch fish. They use springs and latches, but it, they don't move anywhere near as fast. Probably because they need to respond quickly. They don't want to cavitate, right? So they're they're being stealthy. Mm-hmm. So they're they're operating under the more typical animal water speed limit, so that they can um, capture evasive prey. But something happened around 50 million years ago that caused uh, the evolutionary origins um, of extreme hammering. And, man, I would love to know. Yeah. And I, I think I think we'll figure it out. You know, it, it takes looking at, back at what was happening biologically in the planet at that time. And then because that's just one instance, if we can look across many systems that have evolved extreme uh, capabilities, like chameleon tongues and trap jaw ants and lots of other stuff, we might see... General explanation for why animals uh, transition over to being able to do stuff like this.
0: Wow, it's incredible to hear that there are still such amazing things that we don't know about evolution, especially like you know the the forefront of like these really extreme motions. I think it's just it's like always baffling to me, you know, that like such great mysteries still exist in the in the natural world.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, I I think that that's why some of us become scientists. Yeah. (laughs) Because every time I answer one question, there are a thousand more. So either that drives you crazy or you get addicted to it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's really great to hear uh, Sheila talk about how excited she gets about these outstanding mysteries in the natural world. I mean, obviously, and she's, you know, been able to solve, you know, one of the most incredible, you know, mysteries like finding this extreme performance, you know, through going through this, um, you know, this very sort of circuitous route in order to get to this amazing system that she's um, she's shed so much light on. I mean, has been amazing. And then the, along the way, you know, finding potential solutions to all of these other problems that, um, that people across, you know, engineering and material sciences have been trying to solve for a really long time. And I think, to me, thinking about, you know, where this research sits, you know, within the larger realm of science, it brings me back to this quote that, you know, this uh, biologist Theodosius Dobzhansky uh, once said, and that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And so if we hope to solve problems that are important to us, so many of these problems across material sciences and engineering, many of those answers can be found in different branches of the tree of life. And to understand that diversity, understand what has, um, you know, what has caused the, this proliferation of different forms and different functions, evolution is a key component to that story, so it just drives home, I think, for me, this necessity for basic science, you know, basic biology as a you know potential window into these solutions, even if we don't know where those solutions will come from in the outset. Yeah, I mean, especially in the face of all the challenges um, that biodiversity is going to have to deal with, you know, in the coming decades, I, I just it just really drives uh, that home for me.
1: Yeah, and I think honestly, just good old-fashioned curiosity, too, right? Like, Mm. if you are wondering something about the natural world, dive in and explore it. Because I, I think, as we've heard with even Sheila's story, it could lead down wondrously unexpected paths. And who knows what will result from the research that you uncover from that. But it could have ripple effect across all sorts of different industries and can ultimately uh, affect the path of of where we go uh, from like a humankind perspective. And so it's it's just fascinating how even the the, the simplest of inquiries can uh, kind of lead you down this unexpected journey uh, that has profound implications. So it's um it, it's really cool for people to. Lean into their curiosity, and and I think science is a, a, a wonderful world to um, just kind of endlessly explore. And you can feel that and the passion, and just listening to her and her story and the work that she's doing, and even with the stuff that you do, Shane.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So you know, to wrap things up, I think we I think have a much greater insight into Danny Rand and the Immortal Iron Fist than we did before we came into this episode. I've certainly learned a lot. Um, you know, in terms of you know, biomechanics and uh constraints and trade-offs, you know, all the different things that would be involved in you know, Danny Rand actually coming into himself as the immortal iron fist and putting that power into action. I mean, even you know, the extremes of you know, producing light and heat with a punch. Man, it's I mean, it's still I mean, a lot of that research is just staggering to me. It's still just absolutely incredible. Um and man, So I'm just so humbled to be a part of this field sometimes, man. It's it's crazy. Um, but anyway, this has been a lot of fun. And obviously, you know, Arian, it's always a pleasure. Um, yeah, and for those of you out there, you know, the take home points here are that you know, nature does some crazy stuff. And if you see Arian on the street, try to kick him in the face and see what happens. Come
1: at me, bro. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man. It's always good having you in the lab, man.
1: Likewise, my man.
0: Until next time. Till next time. Peace. I really hope you enjoyed episode 10 of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. If you're digging what you hear, rate us on iTunes and Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also tweet at us at SuperBioPodcast and let us know what you think. So with that, I'll say thanks again and stay curious.